Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. What is a breast reduction, and who would need to have it done? Well, the truth is that there are a surprising number of women suffering from large and heavy breasts that impact their lives physically, mentally, and even socially. It's true that the patients who have undergone this procedure are typically so thankful it was available because it's been life-changing. But what does a breast reduction really involve? And what happens to the nipple and to the ability to breastfeed? Plus, will this procedure be covered by insurance? That can make or break whether some people can even pursue it. In this episode, we have Dr. Dinu Mystery coming to us from the northwest part of the country, sharing her thoughts and experiences regarding breast reductions, which she performs frequently. It's clear that she is great with her patients, and it is wonderful to hear her explain the essential information in such an understandable way. Let's take a listen to that conversation now. Well, we are fortunate today to have Dr. Dinu Mystery with us, plastic surgeon in Idaho. And where are you located in Idaho, Dr. Mystery? Welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm in Boise, Idaho. Boise. Great. I've never been there, and I would love to one of these days. You have an open invitation. (laughs) Sounds great. Now, Dino and I actually know each other. We went to medical school together, and that's how I know this delightful person, and I know how talented she is. And and you've got a busy practice now. Could you just very briefly describe what type of practice you have? What types of patients and cases do you typically see? Uh, I have uh, primarily a solo private practice. I spend about a quarter of my practice providing reconstructive breast surgeries uh, at our local hospital, regional hospital. And the rest of the time I do primarily breast surgery and some abdominoplasties and things like that, but no facial surgery, no hand. Gotcha. So body surgery primarily and especially breast. Sounds breast, like. very breast heavy. Yes, there you go. Well, speaking of heavy breasts, we're going to talk about <laughs> breast reduction today. And thank you for um, being willing to discuss this with me. You know, this is a topic that I think a lot of people are curious about and they wonder about. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there, a lot of fear. And the goal of this episode is to really try to clear things up for people and educate them about it. And who better than someone who does this procedure on a regular basis? So first of all, would you explain what a breast reduction is? What does that mean? 
It's actually a combination of two procedures, and that's something that I always emphasize to patients. We don't just reduce the size, but then we take that smaller breast and lift it so mm -hmm. that ultimately we have a smaller breast that is sitting where it should be and does not require so much support from a bra. Ultimately, I have found that the size of the breast is actually less important than the position of the breast. That for people who are complaining of neck, back, shoulder pain, and the usual things that come with people who are contemplating a breast reduction, the vast majority of those complaints immediately get better with a lift. And so the idea of the reduction is just to make sure that the breast is small enough that it can stay where you put it. And you touched on this a little bit, but who needs this procedure? What kind of problems are your patients relaying to you that they've been going through? What is it they're trying to accomplish by coming to you? Patients have typically a very common set of complaints and often are unaware that their breasts are responsible for all of them. Mm. So the, the classic ones are neck, back, and shoulder pain, which I believe is mostly spasm of the trapezius muscle from having constant pressure on the shoulders. Because if you look at a picture of the anatomy of the trapezius muscle, the places where it is attached to you, base of the neck, outer part of the shoulder, middle of the back, between your shoulder blades, are exactly the places that people point to when they have big breasts and are complaining of back pain. Low back pain is typically more related to the fact that most people with large breasts slouch and is not quite as directly related. Upper back pain, sometimes patients will tell me in the recovery room that they can already tell a difference, which blows my mind. It's amazing. And those are the obvious ones. Things that are less obvious are people can have chronic headaches that get triggered from the base of the neck. People can have numbness of the hands and fingers, particularly at night. Um, that's kind of a late finding. And then a really common complaint is rashes under the breast, between the breasts, particularly when it's hot, um, which are yeast infections and really are very hard to treat when you have sort of chronic skin-on-skin -skin contact. Mm -hmm. um, those are the classic ones. Yeah. Obviously, other things are inability to exercise, particularly high-impact exercise like running is profoundly uncomfortable also people are self-conscious uh, they can't wear enough bras not to bounce mm -hmm. and people stare at them and that kind of thing yes exactly and then socially speaking many women will tell me that they are unable to have conversations without people just staring squarely at their chests mm. and younger women uh, are getting a lot of unwanted attention particularly from older men mm that leads to feeling very uncomfortable in your own skin. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of very withdrawn teenagers who are wearing only baggy clothing, can't go swimming or feel they can't go swimming, who really just bloom after they have a breast reduction. Gosh, impressive. You know, and I think it's, a lot of people don't understand, uh, and you've explained this so well, but I think a lot of people don't understand 
how large breasts are causing all of the physical problems in particular. And sometimes it has to do with not only the size of the breast, but as you say, the position of the breast and mm-hmm. that, that fulcrum that's created always pulling down on the front of the chest, forcing you to engage your back muscles to try to right yourself or balance yourself. And then the bra straps themselves, those can contribute Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, some of the numbness and things that that patients have, or even maybe some of the headaches. I used to explain what it must feel like to some people who aren't familiar with that sensation. I would say, imagine what it is like to have two bricks attached to a rope and then string that rope around your neck and walk around all day. And then they kind of get it. <laughs> so <laughs> it is helpful for you to explain all these symptoms, you know, that might give them a better way to understand things. So thank you. Um, how common do you think this procedure is? You know, you're in a practice where you do primarily breasts, so people seek you out for breast surgeries. But how commonly are you ending up doing breast reductions? There was a time when I was doing two a week. Um, Mm. So there is a never-ending supply of patients who would qualify or who are having problems. Unfortunately, the fact that we have many more obese women means that we are seeing a larger number, especially of young women who Mm. develop early and are disproportionately large. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the other key is that many times the obvious people with large breasts are often overweight, Mm -hmm. but weight loss almost never helps Mm -hmm. because weight loss is primarily going to happen in your back fat and will actually typically cause more droop as patients lose weight even though the volume of the actual breast, the cup size, doesn't really change for most younger women. Mm -hmm. Once people are after menopause, the breasts are fattier, Mm -hmm. and then weight gain, weight loss tends to play out in the breasts themselves a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But the idea that if you just lost weight, this would all get better is often not true. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is that it's all about proportion too. Mm -hmm. So somebody who is five foot and weighs 120 pounds may have very similar symptoms with a D-cup breast as somebody who's 5'8 and has a triple E or an E-cup breast. It's all about the proportion of the breast to the size of the person. Mm -hmm. And it's often a much harder sell to insurance if the patient is actually quite small and the breasts are disproportionately large for her, but not necessarily large when you talk about cup sizes. Mm So just to reiterate what you're saying, in younger patients, the breasts are composed more of what we call glandular tissue, true breast tissue, rather than fat. And so just simply losing weight, even if they happen to be obese, is really not going to change things that much. Mm -hmm. You've touched on insurance coverage, Mm -hmm. and why don't we talk about that just a little bit? Does insurance typically pay for this type of surgery? The short answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Or are there roadblocks? (laughs) The longer answer is that a lot of insurers will say they cover the procedure, but they create a tremendous number of hoops to jump through. And I tell my patients that if you are hoping to get insurance coverage, you have to really adopt a pit bull mentality and assume that it's not going to be simple. 
The insurers have very strict criteria. All of the things that I mentioned in terms of symptoms have to be documented and they have to be documented by someone other than the plastic surgeon. So oftentimes patients have been suffering for a long time, but haven't mentioned it when they go in for their gynecologic appointments or their primary care appointments. And without that documentation, when they come to me, I can document it, but the insurer believes that I am a um, self-serving party and mm, they, want, yeah. uh, they want documentation from someone who isn't going to benefit from doing the surgery. So oftentimes they require documentation over a period of years and documentation that the complaints are getting worse and that they are failing what's called conservative therapy. So three months of physical therapy, regionally chiropractic care is sometimes something you can substitute, but that depends very much where you are in the country. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they want x-rays. Sometimes they go as far as requiring a neurosurgery appointment to document that, uh, for instance, numbness in the hands is not related to a slip disc or something unrelated to the breast. And then finally, they require something that assumes that I have calibrated eyeballs, where when I evaluate the patient, I have to guesstimate how much the pathologic specimen is going to weigh. And that is mm -hmm. a number that they come up with using an equation called the Schnur equation based on a patient's height and weight. All of that gets sent to the insurer and then they percolate on it and they may say yes and they may still say no. Some insurers specifically exclude breast reduction as a procedure that they will always call cosmetic, which is ridiculous. Despite the symptoms. Yes. Yeah. So it can be an arduous and very prolonged process of trying to get insurance coverage, even if your insurer says they cover the procedure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be very frustrating, both for the patient and the surgeon. Yes. As I recall from my practice, you know, you have to write a letter to the insurance company, which is not typical for other procedures. and and, uh, you know, document everything as you say, and even then you may get denied, and then you have to try to appeal, and it's yes. just this long, long road, as you say. Well, we've talked about younger patients, and we mentioned older patients, but are there any age limits for this procedure? Is anyone ever too young, or is anyone ever too old? Certainly on the younger end of the spectrum, I hesitate to operate on patients who are not fully developed. Theoretically, breast growth is a process that we sort of arbitrarily say is likely to be done around 25. Uh, in my experience, women who have their periods rather early and who start developing early often are kind of done by the time they're 18. Mm -hmm. I have done patients younger than 18 only in cases where the size of the breast is so extreme that it's really interfering both with the patient's physical ability to do things and is a tremendous emotional burden. Sure. Um, 
when I can, I try and encourage patients to wait until they can sign their own consent forms. So 18. Yeah. More than other breast procedures, this procedure does introduce scarring onto the breast. While I think that we can get some very nice cosmetic results, there is always going to be evidence that this breast has been operated on and that the surgery will interfere in some cases with loss of nipple sensitivity, which can have an impact on sexuality, might interfere with breastfeeding in the future. So I think it's important that the young woman has an opportunity to consider all those things and make that decision for herself. I also have concerns or at least discuss that the younger you do the procedure, the earlier in the time frame that has impact on your breasts, you are addressing this issue. So when you are 17, 18, you have only experienced puberty. Um, there are some other things coming that definitely impact breast size. So if you have children, if you breastfeed, if your weight fluctuates dramatically, and then of course menopause. So there are a lot of things in a woman's life that will impact breast size. And in the ideal world, you understand that if you have surgery very early, you may be setting yourself up for needing a secondary reduction later in life, mm -hmm. which is an option, but yeah. obviously we don't want to operate on you endlessly. Right. Of course, some of those patients would say, I'm suffering so much right now, I don't care if I have to have another procedure. Yes. It's so difficult to know when someone is finished with breast development or close to it. I would often yep. say to my patients, if you haven't had to change your bra size in about two years, we're probably good. But that even that, you just don't know. But I agree. It impacts people's lives so much that a lot of these things that I discuss with them are still hypotheticals. Yeah. Not everybody is going to have a baby. Not everybody's going to breastfeed. Not everybody is going to have weight fluctuations. But if you are currently miserable, that's a, a, a real thing happening to you right now. Yeah, tops everything. Yeah, it's reasonable to say we should address this. Yeah. And how about on the other end of the spectrum? Is a patient ever too old to undergo this procedure? Or how do you gauge that? Honestly, once you're an adult, from my perspective, the issue is not so much the number as it is your health. I see some super healthy 75-year-olds and some very unhealthy 45-year-olds. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to your general health. I have done this procedure on women in their 70s and occasionally their 80s who are absolutely miserable. Mm -hmm. And for those patients, it's still life-changing. I had a, a woman in her 70s who literally was housebound. She couldn't find a bra to fit, and she felt very uncomfortable going out in public mm -hmm. and was physically unable to do things. Wow. And once we did her reduction, her husband relayed that he did not recognize her in the grocery store because he saw her from behind and she was standing up straight. Oh my God, that's amazing. So yes, I will tell you there is no one so angry as a 75-year-old woman whose OBGYN has retired and who just got a new primary care physician or gynecologist who mentioned that breast reduction is something that your insurance might cover. Uh -huh. And her older uh, physician didn't feel that that was important information for her to know. Uh, that's an angry woman. Yeah, um, 
pretty uniformly when I do this procedure, sometime within the first two weeks, I will hear, and this is a direct quote, I wish I had done this sooner. Because people do uh, have some concerns about having surgery, and it's a fairly long surgery, and there are scars, so there are some sort of emotional impediments to pulling the trigger on this. But they are far and away the most satisfied patients you can have in your practice. Isn't that great? Much happier than people who get implants, honestly. Oh my gosh, life-changing. Yep. Well, you know, so we can better explain this for our listeners. What are the basics of breast reduction, the procedure itself? There are many different techniques, but what can we think of as common among those techniques? What happens to the breast physically during surgery and what happens to the nipple? You are correct. There are a variety of different ways of doing this. The basics are that we are trying to preserve where the nipple gets its blood supply from and maintaining the nipple as part of the tissue that it sits on originally so that it continues getting its blood supply and that hopefully also continues to be sensate so that sensation and function of the nipple are normal after surgery. Working around that tissue that we're going to leave behind with the nipple is where we're going to debulk the breast. That's where we can take away tissue that we don't need anymore or wish to get rid of. And then ultimately, uh, very much like seamstressing, we then tailor the skin to match the volume of what I call the stuffing, of what's on the inside of the breast. That's a good way to look at it. So that it all comes together with a smaller breast that doesn't have excess skin. Sometimes, even if we are able to leave the nipple attached to the tissue that it sits on originally, we lose sensation. And that's unfortunately just because there's a single nerve that powers up the nipple that is sometimes injured during the process. The nerve is so small that we know where it should be, but we we rarely see it. Mm -hmm. So we're protecting where it should be and then keeping our fingers crossed that it was there. Mm -hmm. In some cases, in patients that are very large, we are not able to come up with a pattern that will allow us to reduce the breast enough without also removing temporarily the nipple and those we call free nipple grafts, where we remove the nipple at the beginning, create the smaller breast mound, and then reapply the nipple at the end of the procedure. I usually tell patients that at that point, the nipple has become a decorative item. It's an applique. It's like a little skin graft on the breast mound. Yeah, it looks normal and it's yours. And uh, if done well, it's hard to tell that it was grafted but it will definitely only have pressure sensation. Mm -hmm. And for patients who still are considering breastfeeding, that would definitely not be possible if we are grafting. So in younger women, that's definitely a conversation that we have beforehand. And I found in my practice is often the patients who have the just extremely large breasts where you have to consider that procedure, because normally we are able to save the nipple. But there are times when, you, as you say, you just can't um, if you're going to do an effective surgery. Yeah. So with these basic steps of the technique, what type of scarring would patients typically expect? I know it will differ based on 
the surgeon and how they do it individually, but what do you tell your patients? What's the basic understanding of scarring to be expected? The classic scar is going to be uh, around the areola, the pigmented part of the nipple, and then a vertical extension down from the bottom of the areola to the fold, what I typically tell patients just is the lollipop part of the scar. Yeah. Frequently, there will also be a scar in the fold itself, but that is hidden by the breast unless you really put your arms over your head. That scar can be variably long depending on which technique you use. And so ultimately for the classic breast reduction scar looks like an anchor if you see the whole scar, but the lower part of that scar pattern is often tucked up under the breast so that only the lollipop is visible. Interestingly, most people really worry about the stem of the lollipop, the vertical scar, and that, in my experience, always does the best. I agree. That scar is going to be the, the least obvious given a couple of years. And if you have a little pigmentation in the areola, that scar typically kind of blends into the edge of the areola as well. So for most patients, they are surprised that the scar, even though it's extensive, is often not that noticeable a couple of years down the line. Yeah. I've found the exact same thing as you. Yeah, it's really amazing how that vertical part of the scar just, for most people, really does blend in over time. So that's great. Well, now, where is the surgery typically performed and what type of anesthesia would be used? I certainly do my surgeries in a surgery center setting. Uh, I think for most surgeons, this is a procedure best done under general anesthesia, just because it's going to be a pretty long procedure, I think an average of four to five hours for most people. Patients often forget that breast surgery is actually operating on two things. Um, we kind of think of them as a set, but uh, you've got to do both of them. And to do a good job, often two to three hours per side, depending on how big they are. And certainly in my practice, I think it's absolutely essential that the patient can be put on the table very symmetrically in a position where I can actually sit them up during surgery. Good point. Um, so that I can check over time whether or not the breasts are even. Mm -hmm. uh, and if what I'm doing is creating a breast that's gonna look good when she stands up. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's important to be under general anesthesia so that the patient isn't wiggling around during the procedure. Yeah, if you're trying to do it with a local anesthetic or sedation yeah, yeah. I think it doesn't give you the best opportunity to get a symmetric result yeah that being said I also tell patients that mother nature almost never makes twins <laughs> and I usually do a better job than mother nature but uh, I love it the outcome is very likely to be siblings that look a lot like each other uh, a lot of patients start out with neighbors so um, <laughs> that's great <laughs> that's a great way to put it but I make sure that they know that it's it's probably not going to be absolutely perfectly symmetric. Oh, my gosh. I, I love that because it's true. Most patients don't realize that nobody really has perfectly symmetrical breasts. It's just just doesn't happen. They might be quite close, but, um, you know, yeah, you have to temper your expectations afterwards. Although we do try to get things as even as possible, of course. What about recovery from breast reduction? What do you typically tell your patients? I find that surprisingly, patients typically, if they have had other procedures like a C-section or a knee replacement or something, that 
even though this procedure is often longer than those procedures, the breasts typically are not the most sensitive organs in terms of how painful it is after surgery. If you think about breasts, they are skin bags hanging on the outside of you, which is not very sexy when you think about it that way. <laughs> right. But so that makes this operation typically a pretty superficial operation. You're not going under the muscle, you're not going into the chest. And so for most patients, the overwhelming discomfort is something they describe as a burning sensation, a superficial burning sensation. Mm -hmm. More from the skin. Yeah. And so I find that for most patients, I will give them a narcotic medication for the first two days, three days max. And then after that, ibuprofen and Tylenol are plenty. Most people go from ouchy to achy very mm -hmm. quickly. And I have had any number of patients who never took the narcotic and felt like they were getting enough relief from ibuprofen. The beauty of the breasts are that if you are not moving your arms around and are wearing good support, they really don't move that much. Mm -hmm. So unlike abdominal surgery where you have to breathe and engage right. your core, with breast surgery, if you are following instructions and not engaging your arms very much, they don't move around that much in the early post-operative mm -hmm. period, and most people do pretty well. Right. What do you tell patients about return to activity? I emphasize to patients that the first 10 days is when you're going to get the one complication that we cannot take care of outside of the operating room. If you overdo early, you are likely going to go back to the operating room for a bleed, which is not life-threatening, but is a second trip to the operating room and for your health and your pocketbook, that's never a good idea. So my instructions to them are that they should not push, pull, or reach overhead. They certainly should not be doing any kind of heavy housekeeping, but I also emphasize they shouldn't be doing light housekeeping that's repetitive. So you can get them mugged down for coffee, but you shouldn't be unloading the dishwasher. You can pull your blankets up, but you shouldn't be folding laundry. So I really tell patients that they should just give their arms a vacation for the first 10 days. It should be up and about, but should not be doing anything that uh, gets your heart rate up on purpose. So strolling is fine, but going for a four mile hike is not a good idea. And yeah. going to the gym is a no-no. Yeah, when could they go back? Yeah, after two weeks then, low impact exercise is okay. But things like weights, jogging, body weight exercises like yoga and Pilates, I usually tell people four to six weeks, depending on how things are healing. Okay. And generally, what can patients expect in terms of risks of this procedure? Like, how would you counsel a patient to think about the frequency of complications and what the bigger, more concerning ones would be? The specific risks that we worry about from a medical standpoint are primarily infection and bleeding, both of which are pretty rare. The other things are what we consider plastic surgery risks. Mm -hmm. So how good is the scar? And that's partly me, but it's also partly the patient following instructions post-operatively, and then we do a variety of scar management things as most plastic surgeons do with massage and lotions and potions that we apply given how the scar is maturing over time. 
And sometimes it's the patient's skin quality, too. There are some patients who are more predisposed to developing problematic scars, no matter how careful you are with your technique. Absolutely. And that's part of the conversation when we do the initial consultation, is to talk to patients about previous experiences with scarring and looking at other scars that they may have had from C-sections or other lumps and bumps that they've had removed, if they appear to be people who are likely to get worse scars, we spend a little extra time on that and I have before and after pictures so that Mm -hmm. patients have an opportunity to actually see what it might look like if you are getting a hypertrophic scar everywhere on the breast. Mm -hmm. And at least prepare patients for worst case scenario And then, of course, you know, as plastic surgeons, we take some extra care with post-operative management, usually, to kind of encourage a better scar. But you're absolutely right. Some people just aren't great scar formers. And unfortunately, we kind of have to help people see that beforehand. The last things are then the nipple. Yeah. Loss of nipple sensitivity is about 5% of the time. Nerves are incredibly slow to recover. So it's often true that patients who have early loss of sensation will recover, but it can be a two to three year process of very slow recovery. And so even at the one year follow-up, when we generally kind of are done, we are still telling patients, you know, this could still get better, but the chances of it getting better after a year kind of are declining. And that's certainly something to discuss with the patient Makes sense. And what about the likelihood of not being able to breastfeed afterwards? I know it depends on technique and and the breast originally, but how often in your practice have you had someone complain, hey, I couldn't breastfeed after this and I wanted to? Not frequently. I will say that I think that if a patient tells me that she's getting married, she's planning on having babies soon, and breastfeeding is something she wants to do, I will certainly counsel that patient, why don't you wait a year or two? Because your breasts are gonna change regardless if you're about to embark on childbearing. So why don't we wait, get through this period of your life, and then let's come back to it, and then I can fix everything. We can change the things that breastfeeding and pregnancy may have done. I find that most patients who are committed to getting a breast reduction understand that there might be some downsides to that. And that's the other reason why I like to have patients either 18 or older or at least very mature young women who are younger than that with whom I can have a mature conversation about the potential for the fact that that just might not happen Mm -hmm. um, and let them decide how important that is. I've had quite a few patients who've been able to breastfeed. Yeah. They sometimes have to supplement. Yeah. It, it really, I think, depends on the volume of actual glandular tissue that's left behind mm-hmm. and where it is. Um, for yeah. some patients, that tissue is very peripheral, and that's primarily the breast tissue that we take away. And for some people, it's very central, right underneath the nipple, and that's usually what we're leaving behind. Excellent point. So a lot of that is very unpredictable, even in patients where we don't do huge reductions, that it just depends where the glandular tissue was. And what about future mammograms? What do you tell patients to expect? Should they expect any issues with that, or what do you think? 
I do warn them that the first mammogram that they get after surgery is not going to be one that they can compare with their baseline mammogram if they've been getting mammograms already. And I warn them that they may get a call back. Because they can't use the previous mammograms, they're having to chase down everything they see. And so you may get a call back for an ultrasound or a compression view. But in general, it's a win-win because people with large breasts typically have very uncomfortable mammograms where they have to do additional views to get the whole breast on the plate. And after surgery, the, the process of getting the mammogram is often easier. I do tell them that it's possible that you could get some scar tissue in the breast that lights up on a mammogram. But I think that in practice, most of that scar tissue is recognizably scar tissue and not confusing in the sense mm -hmm. that, that uh, it's causing concern that it's something more dire, like a cancer. Yeah, that might need to be biopsied. Yeah, I do tell patients that they should wait about six months after surgery, though. And most, most... Uh, because you have to compress the breast during the mammogram. Well, most centers won't do it because there's still some residual swelling from the surgery that can cause things to look scary when, in fact, it's just still swollen. And most patients are, like you say, not that enthused about getting squished that early. <laughs> right. Certainly a 3D is always a good idea. 3D mammogram. Yes. They're actually just clearer. I think that the tissues um, are less likely to make overlapping shadows. And I think the uh, insurers are now largely covering yeah. 3D mammograms without additional charge. Well, before we finish up here, just curious, we touched on this a little bit, but how successful do you find this particular procedure to be, the breast reduction? Any other patient stories that come to mind that would illustrate that? Uh, lots of patient stories, yeah. but yes, I have never done a breast reduction that didn't largely address the concerns that patients had going into it. I have never had a patient who came back and said she regretted doing the procedure. Mm -hmm. I had one woman who had done several experimental clinical trials out of state for refractory migraines. She was having migraines sometimes three and four a week wow. and was unable to work and had had pretty much everything thrown at her migraines. We did her reductions and she was off medication the next week. She stopped having headaches. Amazing. It, it is a hugely successful procedure. People are able to exercise. People are able to wear clothing that's appropriate. Neck, back, and shoulder pain almost universally resolves. Back pain resolves because now you can exercise and do the things you need to do to stand up straight. It is extremely discouraging that the insurance industry does not support breast reduction because it is a not terribly expensive procedure. It fixes things that insurers cover. They will cover you getting physical therapy indefinitely. They will cover you going to see a neurosurgeon. Uh, some patients have had disc surgery that they probably didn't need. Ah, oh, yeah. It's 
one of those things where if they would support doing this procedure, they would probably spend less on peripheral procedures. And it's just mind boggling to me that this is so difficult to get coverage for. I have uh, neurosurgeon colleagues who send patients to me before they operate, especially on necks, because oftentimes if we do a reduction, which is a much less risky procedure, sure. at the very least we buy that patient some time so that yeah. she can go on for maybe another decade without having to have spine surgery. Mm. So yes, there's endless success stories. And I find that this is in many ways an issue because it's a female procedure. Yep. It is applying to a particular group of people and they just find that it is convenient. We're not dying as a result of having large breasts, right. but just living a difficult life, living a difficult life. And that's not enough to justify doing a procedure, apparently, at yeah. least not if you're female. Yeah. Very, very frustrating. Well, how about uh, any final words for our listeners? We've heard so much from you, such great information. Anything you'd like to leave them with? Well, I, I do encourage patients to seek out consultation. If, if this is something that has been bothering you, and if you think that you might be a candidate for this procedure, it's worth getting a consultation, even if your insurance doesn't cover it. It's something that is a valuable investment. And uh, if you are able to have a good conversation with a plastic surgeon that is somebody that you have confidence in, it can, for many women, be a life-changing procedure. And the fact that your insurance won't cover it should not necessarily stand between you and making a decision for yourself that has such long-lasting impact. Well said. Thank you so much. Dr. Dino Mystery, it has been a delight speaking with you today, and thank you for sharing all your wisdom with all the listeners. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Regina, for having me on. It was uh, my pleasure to chat with you today. Great. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.